Now, the reading for today is Jeremiah 20, 14 through 18. Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making me very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon. Because he did not kill me in the womb, so my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come, come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning and uh, welcome to the Leeward campus. Y'all look rested this morning. Um, what a great gift of grace, that extra hour of sleep. Uh, my name is Tom Nelson, and I have the great joy of serving on our teaching team, and I want to give you the warmest welcome in Jesus uh, on this beautiful fall day. Well, part of every journey of faith is inevitably a crisis of faith. As a college student, I faced a very serious crisis of faith. It seemed like almost every morning in class, one of my bright university professors, who I respected, challenged the complete intellectual plausibility of my Christian faith. But what might surprise you, maybe not, I don't know, is that the greatest crisis of my faith yet did not occur as a college student. It occurred as a pastor. I went to seminary believing that God had called me to serve his church. But yet just in a couple of years after we began Christ's community, I found myself in the most excruciating, overwhelming, despairing crisis of faith. It was a crisis of my calling. The task of pioneer church planting was simply overwhelming to me. And every day, the progress we were making seemed painfully slow. The first thing that greeted me every morning I opened my eyes was the real likelihood of failure, massive failure. And during that time, as a family, we faced severe financial crisis, great stress, and a life-threatening illness. If that was not enough, a relational conflict and the stinging bars of criticism pushed me into the deepest, darkest place I've ever experienced. And it was a deep place that questioned my calling as a pastor. I wrestle with God. I won't share with you everything I said to him, but I'll give you a little sample. You ready? I said to God, the best I could say is, God, I thought you'd call me to do this. I thought I heard your voice. Did I get it all wrong? God, I am not gifted enough to do this. I simply can't do this anymore. At that moment, there was nothing more I wanted to do than to do something else. But should I? Or maybe I should raise the question, could I? And though we may be reluctant to talk about them, I think many people of faith are, Crises of faith are a part of every journey of faith. Many things can trigger them. 
It can be a crippling intellectual doubt, an ongoing unanswered prayer, a deeply wounding relationship often with another person of faith, or a very hurtful and disillusioning experience in a local faith community. It may be the ongoing suffering of a loved one that simply refuses to make sense in our minds. And it may very well be a crisis of your vocational calling. Perhaps you're entering a season, a new season of life, and you are struggling to know what God has for you now. Or you may be in a moment where you thought you were doing what God wanted you to do, but you find yourself in this bewildering fog of confusion, smothering in a black hole of doubt. In these crises of faith and crises of calling, nothing makes sense around you. The circumstances of your life and the huge challenges in your work seem to be at complete odds with the promise of God, his presence, and his protection. You may be there right now. You may be questioning everything in your life. You may be ready to throw in the towel of faith. Your faith might be hanging on in a slim thread. And maybe if you are honest, you really struggled wanting to get to church this morning. See, crises of faith are very, very real. And they take us often to the deepest, darkest places in the depths of our soul. But do crises of faith have to crush our faith? Can crises of faith actually strengthen it? If you brought a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me this morning to Jeremiah chapter 20, which we gave you a little sliver in the reading. Aren't you excited? <laughs> now, as a church family, we are exploring this magnificent yet very mysterious Old Testament book called Jeremiah. Now, why it's so mysterious and difficult is not only that it has 52 chapters, it's a long one, but it is its literary genre, its literary scaffolding that seems confusing to us. It is a literary genre of not a narrative, but an anthology. And what we mean by that is it is arranged, not chronologically, but around notable life experiences. It's like a scrapbook with no pictures. As we enter into Jeremiah chapter 20, this is not your Facebook page that makes you look good. That presents to the world all the goodness and all the smiles and all the good pictures. No, this is raw and this is transparent. It is rhetorically raw. Now, Jeremiah tells us that Baruch, his personal scribe, is the one who arranges it. So Baruch puts it in chapter 20, almost in the middle of the book, not by accident. It is Jeremiah's lowest point recorded in Holy Writ. And his lowest point in his life, Baruch wants us to know, is rooted in his crisis of calling. Let me give you a heads up again. This text is rhetorically raw. And it's painfully transparent. But exploring Jeremiah's faith crisis, it's incredibly relevant to your life and mine. And I want to raise three questions 
and address them for us this morning in this sacred text. First, what triggered the crisis? Secondly, how did Jeremiah respond to the crisis? And third, what can you and I learn from the crisis? So the flow of the text this morning we want to unpack is what triggered it, how did Jeremiah respond to it, and what can we learn from it? Ready? Here we go. First question. What triggered the crisis? Or should we say who? Look at verses 1 through 3. Now Pashur, the priest, the son of Immer, who was the chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. That is the temple. The next day, when Pashur released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord does not call your name Pashur, but terror on every side. For Jeremiah, the trigger of his crisis of calling was a person. Yes, a religious person. Jeremiah wants us to know that Pashur was of the highest clergy level serving in the temple of Jerusalem. But what he wants you to know, he also wants you to know, by dripping irony, is that Pashur's name is important as well as his position. This Hebrew text, translated in English, is dripping with irony. Two things to observe is that Pashur in Hebrew means tranquil. or at ease. But Pashur is no pushover. Underneath his clergy vestments, Jeremiah tells us, with his nickname, that's what it is, is a tower of terror. Pashur's name is not only ironic, but his position is. Because as a reader, you would expect a leader in Jerusalem, a leader, a religious leader, would welcome and applaud Jeremiah as a prophet of God. But he vehemently opposes Jeremiah. He hates Jeremiah's message of the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation to Babylon. So rather than turning on the message, he wants to turn on the messenger. Now verse 2 captures for us Pashur's incredible cruelty, and we must not miss this cruelty. First, the text says he beats Jeremiah. This is not merely a slap in the face or giving Jeremiah a black eye to teach him a lesson. The Old Testament law allowed, in certain extreme cases, the severe punishment of 40 lashes. Historically, Jewish people were only allowed 39, lest they die from it. Pashur not only beats him to the edge of death, and the text says he does it himself, Pashur then puts Jeremiah in stocks. Now, the Hebrew word for stocks in the original text means to cause distortion. And in the stocks, feet, hands, and neck were placed to maximize pain. Now, here's just a picture of what it might have looked like. We don't know exactly. I think it's coming up. But it's not a pretty picture. The stocks were designed to deliver maximum physical punishment, but also the text says very specifically that Pasher puts the stocks in the most visible place where everybody's walking through. It's the front gate, the, 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 the court of Benjamin. So what is going on here is extreme pain physically and public shame and humiliation. 
And we must not miss that as a spokesperson for God, Jeremiah's greatest persecution, his lowest point came not from pagan Babylon, but from religious Jerusalem. It was the 17th century French philosopher and Christian, Blaise Pascal, who looked across the train of history and said it well, that men never do evil so delightfully that in the name of God. And Jeremiah experienced this in painful ways. Of course, men and women do evil without the name of God. But the point is, is here in the text, Baruch, Jeremiah's scribe, wants us to know where the persecution is coming from. And many of our brothers and sisters around the world today face this. In fact, we know from data that never before in the history of the church have more followers of Jesus been persecuted for their faith. A great deal of persecution around the globe, friends, comes from ecclesial and religious power. Nowhere is this more evident currently in our world than what our brothers and sisters in Christ face in Iran. Christians and friends of Christ's community like Farshid Fatah, who was recently released but spent years in prison, enduring torture and solitary confinement. We should not have any night today that Iran is led by 21st century Pashurs, religious clergy, who in the name of their God are unimaginably cruel to followers of Jesus. As a church, we are privileged to partner with Elam, a ministry to the persecuted church in Iran. And may we be reminded in this text this morning of the timelessness and the timeliness of praying for the persecuted church. One of the opportunities you have is there's a wonderful little guide in the back in the lobby on praying for Iran. May we pray for the persecuted church across the world, and particularly those brothers and sisters in Iran. But in our country, we still have a good deal of religious freedom, which we must be grateful for. We probably will not be beaten and put in stocks for faith in Jesus, but we are encountering increasing rejection and opposition for our faith in Jesus. Simply because we are a Christian and because our moral convictions are counter to much of our culture, we may experience overt and subtle rejection. We may receive ridicule from family members or work colleagues or friends at school. We may be and are increasingly as true followers of Jesus. We may be excluded from invitations to social gatherings, in academic context. The untold story of academic freedom is that few places in our culture is there greater persecution than the academic world. In the academic world, the denial of tenure is common for anyone of faith in Jesus. Or in the marketplace, you may very well not get a job you want because of your faith, or you may be blocked from getting a promotion. But will this crush our faith or strengthen our faith? How will we stand up with love and grace and courage when times are hard 
And most observers of American culture tell us that times are going to be increasingly hard for his true church. See, Jeremiah is in great distress here. He finds himself in a crisis of faith. He is facing the perfect physical, emotional, relational, and spiritual storm. How does he respond? This is the second question that we must consider. Now, I want you to notice in your text, and I hope you have your chapter open, that there is a threefold lament that follows. The word lament is not a word we use every day, right? A lament is kind of like a complaint. We're all good at that. I am. (laughs) But it's much more agonizingly raw and emotionally transparent. So let's look at Jeremiah's threefold lament, and it flows in this order. Against God, against his friends, and against his own existence. Look at me first at the first aspect of his lament, against his God, in verses 7 through 8. Jeremiah says, O Lord, you have deceived me. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day. Everyone mocks me. For wherever I speak, I cry out and shout, violence and destruction is coming. That's the idea. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. Wow. These are some very strong words to God from a prophet of God. But we must not see them as willful unbelief, but rather heartfelt struggle. This text is often misinterpreted and miscommunicated. What we see in Scripture is that the God of the Holy Scriptures puts out a gracious welcome mat for any transparent lament, but he has a tightly closed and latched door to any willful unbelief. So what is Jeremiah doing here? What is he saying? To understand this, we need to understand its connection to chapter 1. We have to look back to Jeremiah chapter 1 because in a message earlier we talked about the initial call of Jeremiah. And in chapter 1 verse 8, after Jeremiah is told he's going to be a prophet to the nation, God says to Jeremiah these words, wow, do not be afraid of them for I am with you, what? To deliver you, declares the Lord. That's what God promised. The challenge is, in any crisis of faith, is there's a massive chasm between what God has said and what Jeremiah has experienced. Can you relate to that? A massive chasm of experience between God promised in your life and what you're experiencing. Along with the physical pain, it's brutal for him. There is emotional shame of public humiliation, but Jeremiah's greatest pain is not that. It is Feeling abandoned by God. Of God not being there for him as God had promised. Well, God had said, don't be afraid. Jeremiah is feeling afraid. He is undone with fear from within. So the question lurking in the text is, how on earth could this be God's deliverance? It makes no sense. Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is struggling big time. It's basically, he says, would you call me to do this prophet thing, God? You overpromised, and you are under-delivering. 
Now notice what the lament focuses on on God. It's a powerful word. No sugarcoating here. He says, you deceived me. And the word deceive can also be in Hebrew seduced, even in a more negative context. It's basically saying, you tricked me into this calling thing. And if we properly connect chapter 1 and chapter 20, which we have to to understand this text, we realize that Jeremiah's greatest crisis of calling is not when he's initially called in chapter 1. But it is later when his calling hits the wall, as all callings do. When overwhelming circumstances face him, when unrealized expectations mock him, and when painful persecution pains him. If you've ever run a marathon or you know someone who has, they will often talk about hitting the wall. And hitting the wall describes that point later on in the race, not at the beginning, when you simply cannot go on. When your body is screaming at you that you can't take one more step. And it never happens at the beginning. It happens in the middle of the race. Often toward the end. And in the race of faith, Jeremiah has hit the wall. That's the best metaphor I can pull out. He's hit the wall big time. And in your journey of faith, if you follow Christ, you will hit the wall too. The wall is a part of the journey of faith. But what do you do when you hit it? The wall of crisis, the crisis of faith, the follower of Jesus who hits the wall can hit it with suffering or overwhelming circumstances or the wall of failure or the wall of heartache or the wall of deep doubt or the wall of God's apparent silence. Or the wall of God's apparent indifference to you. Or the wall when that moment overwhelms you when God has not seemed to meet your needs. When Jeremiah hits the wall of faith, Jeremiah does what we would be wise to do. And here is instruction for us across the pages of Scripture to the 21st century. He embraces the timeless discipline of lament. Lament is one of the greatest gifts God has given to us. Many of the Old Testament Psalms teach us how to lament. Many of the Psalms express in raw and transparent ways when you read them great crises of faith with godly people. David, a man after God's own heart, hitting the wall of crisis. But they bring hopefulness in the midst of lament. See, lament is not only a personal spiritual discipline, it is also a corporate worship discipline. When we gather together on Sunday morning, there are many things that we experience together and the importance of corporate worship, but one of the things we must experience increasingly in our lives, in our culture, in our world, is we are invited by God in the scriptures to express our individual and corporate lament for the brokenness of our world. and the brokenness of our lives. And we cry out to God, this is not how it's supposed to be. To honestly express our most heartfelt hurts together and to confess our ultimate hope in God. 
and the good news of the gospel. Not only does Jeremiah raise a complaint against God, in particular God's calling on his life, notice how he raises next a complaint against his friends who have turned their backs on him. With friends like these, who needs enemies? Look at verse 10. For I hear many whisperings, terrors on every side. There's word plays going on here, Pashur. Denounce him. Let us denounce him, say all my close friends. Notice the language. Watching for my fall, eagerly waiting is the idea. Perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. Few things, isn't it true, are more painful and disillusioning and devastating to our hearts and our souls and our lives and to our faith when friends we trusted, friends we thought we could count on, friends who are people of faith turn on us and stab us in the back and betray us. Many times, relational heartache in the context of faith is the greatest trigger of a crisis of faith. Jeremiah is lamenting, I think, what the psalmist describes in Psalm 55, 12. And this is what I think is going on. For it is not an enemy, the psalmist says, who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familial friend. Perhaps... The text is not explicit in Jeremiah, but it's hinting at it. Pashur is no stranger to Jeremiah. Whether he was best friends to Jeremiah, we can't tell, but he clearly was known by Jeremiah. They knew each other. And this again adds to the incredible pain that Jeremiah is feeling. Let's not forget Jesus felt the incredible pain with his close friend Judas betraying him for 30 stinking pieces of silver. Jeremiah's raw lament, and it's raw, tells us he is at the end of his physical, emotional, and spiritual, and relational rope. God has seemed to let him down. His friends have let him down, and now he turns on his parents. What else do you do when you can't turn on anybody else? Who have let him down by letting him be born. This is how bad it is. In verses 14 through 18, his lament reaches its lowest point. He laments his own existence, and he blames his parents for it. He cries out in verses 14 through 18. Cursed be the day in which I was born. And Jeremiah challenges his parents to, why wasn't I aborted? And then he ends his lament in verse 18 with these words. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Jeremiah's words of despair must be seen, not only in the context of his deepest emotional existential realities, but they must be seen in contrast to chapter 1 and God's call on his life. Remember in chapter 1, verse 5, God said to him, even before you were conceived or born, I knew you and I had a plan for you. Verse 5, God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. 
Jeremiah is not only ruling against God, he's ruling about God's calling in his life. He's saying, God, you, you said you knew me. You didn't know me. I wish I'd never been born. Wow. The depths of sorrow and despair for God's prophet. This is God's good guy. May be surprising to us. It may be shocking to you. It should be unsettling to you, but we must not sugarcoat it or we're not faithful to the text. Because what we learn from this text is a crisis of faith, whatever it is, takes us off into a very dark place. The world was shocked about this recently. Mother Teresa, her diary she kept for 40 years was published against her will. And it describes 40 years of ongoing crisis of faith at the most fundamental level. In her diary, here's a couple entries. Think of this. This is Mother Teresa. In my own soul, I feel the terrible pain of this loss. I feel that God does not want me, that God is not God, and that he does not really exist. You hear her lament? And one of the hardest things to read, it brings tears to your eyes, she says in a lament, God, who am I that you should forsake me? I'm the child of your love. (laughs) And now I become as the most hated one. Notice this, I think it's the most painful statement to ever read. You have thrown away me as unwanted and unloved. Wow. Mother Teresa. Like Jeremiah, the prophets, Elijah, Jonah, Moses, the crisis of calling, they find themselves in a very dark place. They get to the point, you'll notice this throughout Scripture, of wishing they'd never been born. And Job, who finds himself in the crucible of severe suffering, the loss of his family, the loss of his wealth, the loss of his health, cries out in agonizing lament in Job 31, why did I not die at birth and come out of the womb and expire? In a very dark night of his soul, Jeremiah is questioning everything. His call, his life, his worth. God has gone silent on him. Jeremiah feels bewildered, abandoned, and desperately alone. But in the midst of this dark night of lament, notice there are slivers of hopeful light. In verses 11 through 12, Jeremiah reminds himself that God is with him as a powerful warrior, that God has a long view, and that suffering is not eternal. And through tearful eyes of pain, there is a praise moment that erupts from Jeremiah's lips. Don't miss this. In verse 13, we find this rapturous praise. Sing to the Lord. Praise to the Lord. For he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. The good news of the rest of this book of Jeremiah is that Jeremiah, against all his feelings, doesn't toss in the towel here. In this agonizing crisis of faith, in this excruciating call or struggle that he has, Jeremiah, who's at the end of his rope, no question, clings to true hope. Jeremiah clings with white knuckles to God himself. Jeremiah's crisis of faith does not crush his faith. It actually deepens it. The crisis of faith you and I experience in our journey of faith can deepen our faith too. So what can we learn from Jeremiah's crisis? One of the blessings in the midst of the heartache of crisis, particularly crisis of calling, is that two paradoxes emerge transformational paradoxes in your life. The first one is this. God's call is risky, yet it's safe. 
While God's vocational calling on each of our lives may be different, there is a common reality for each one of us. God's call will inevitably take us out of our comfort zone. No question. While we are drawn to the familiar, to the comfortable, we think it's safe, don't we? The paradox is that we are most safe, not in our comfort zone, but in God's faith zone. The New Testament Hebrew writer describes this. His faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Walking in faith, yoked to Jesus Christ, is risky. Following Christ is risky. From the finite perspective that we have, the path of faith is uncharted, and it's very uncertain. Yet the paradox is that there is no greater certainty we can embrace, no safer place we can dwell than right in the midst of God's will, whatever that is for us. In following Christ at school, at work, at home, you and I will face difficulties. We will face disappointments. We will face heartache, fears, and uncertainties. And you may soon find yourself in a deep crisis of faith. But the question is, will you trust a God who risks it all? Who gave up his only begotten son, Jesus, who came to this sin-ravaged earth, who shed his innocent blood as an atoning sacrifice for you? In a garden called Gethsemane, Jesus faced his greatest crisis of calling. The cross loomed before him. Blood, like tears of sweat, fell from him in agony as he faced his calling to go to the cross. Yet he embraced his calling to go to the cross for you and me. So how will you respond to him? We respond in repentance and faith in Jesus to the one who calls you to himself and who calls you to join him in his redemptive work this week in your workplace, in your place of calling to a sin-ravaged world. Will you embrace the good news of the gospel? And will you lean into the transforming paradox of gospel faith that while God's calling will be remarkably risky, at the same time, it is unimaginably safe. Hear me carefully. If you follow Jesus, you will find yourself in a crisis. The dark night of the soul you will encounter. Bank on it. When Christ's light seems distant, but no dark night of the soul can ever stop Christ's light from shining through. There is no earthly circumstance. There is no earthly pain. Paul reminds us in Romans 8 that can ever separate you from the love of Christ. The first paradox we find in our crisis of calling or a faith crisis is that God's call is risky. It's risky, but it's safe. But the second paradox of this calling is that God's calling is costly, yet it's priceless. For Jeremiah, God's call in his life was very costly, wasn't it? Yet embedded in chapter 20 is an emerging paradox. Though very costly, it was truly priceless. In verse 9, you'll notice Jeremiah gives us a sliver of hint of this paradox. There is in my heart, he says, a burning fire shut in my bones, and I'm weary holding it in, and I cannot. What is Jeremiah saying? God, I don't want to do this, but I cannot not do this. 
What you have called me to do is so costly, I can't take it. Yet it's so priceless, I can't miss out on it. I must do this. When Jesus called his disciples to follow him, he made the point that it would be very costly, but it would prove priceless, right? Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The cross was an instrument of death. A very costly giving up of one's entire life. But Jesus says the exhilarating and priceless path to finding one's life goes through the cross. Jesus is saying there's a fire burning in your bones. The wooing of eternity beckons your heart. It's costly, but it's priceless. You must do this. Oz Guinness, who's written the finest book on calling, and I recommend it to you, a friend of Christ's community and a friend, writes in this book such profound truth. I think he's most profound when he says this. The call is all. Jesus is the reason. The only way to follow is to leave everything and follow him. Here is a call that makes short work of all our questions, objections, and evasions. Disciples are not so much those who follow as those who must follow. Let me say that again. Disciples are not so much those who follow as those who must follow. Crises of faith often take us to a dark yet illuminating place. It is a risky yet safe place. It is a costly yet priceless place. It is where we must follow Jesus no matter what. No matter what. Have you come to this point in your faith journey? It is this point that will give you confidence that you can get through the crisis of faith. Will you follow Jesus? Not because you can, but because you must at any cost. Crisis of faith need not crush your faith. They can actually strengthen it. In the upper room in Jerusalem, Jesus' fearful disciples were facing a massive crisis of faith when you read the text. Jesus had said he was leaving them, but he would return someday. In that same upper room, Jesus instituted Holy Communion. Holy Communion is the church's memorial remembrance, but it is a hopeful appetizer of what was to come. Jesus took the bread, he blessed it. He took the cup and blessed it. When we gather around the Holy Communion table of our crucified and risen Lord, the crises of faith we inevitably experience as followers of Jesus is put into a new and hopeful perspective. So as we come to the Lord's table, may we in grace and mercy in our time of need, may we find him in a real way. And may we experience the transforming truth that crises of faith need not crush our faith. They can actually strengthen our faith. So we come to the Holy Communion table this morning. Let's bow our hearts for time of preparation and prayer. Heavenly Father, calm our hearts and minds this morning. Speak into our experience of where we are right now. Lord, your word says that we confess our sin. You are faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And perhaps our greatest sin we need to address is our reluctance to fully follow you. Lord, now as we come as your people, bless the bread and the cup
that we are partaking of for your glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. The Christ community, we practice open communion. That means that you don't have to be a member of Christ community to come. But it does mean that you've embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior. So find a communion table near you where you're sitting. Come, gather as groups around the table and partake. Jesus invites all who have embraced him as his Savior and Lord to come and partake. Please come. <laughs>